You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 199 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Before we start this week's episode, I quickly want to mention that I have a Patreon page where those listeners that really appreciate this advert-free podcast can show their support. And you can give whatever you want uh, every month uh, and get access to a lot of content. But if you give a thousand dollars a month, I will send you a sticker. Now, recently, three new patrons subscribed and they are not getting a sticker But um, they are going to receive my eternal gratitude for taking the time to become patrons. So thank you Matt P, R. Gork and Stephen K. Go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist if you want to take part. I would really appreciate it if you do. Now, in this episode my guest is a psychedelic witch or also known as Thomas... Hatsis, an author, lecturer, and historian of witchcraft, magic, Western religions, contemporary psychedelia, entheogens, and medieval pharmacopoeia. Also, in Thomas' spare time, he visits rare archives, slings elixirs, and coaches roller derby. Let's begin. Thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Can you inform our listeners about yourself, uh, who you are, and what you do? Sure. Uh, I uh, I write books on psychedelic and entheogenic history, and uh, I recently just published a book on um, uh, modern magical practices uh, pertaining to microdosing, and uh, that's about it. I'm very boring. So this book uh, looks at the historical use of microdosing? Well, no, no. I, I focus on the history of psychedelic use um, and uh, the, I guess, the modern um, phenomenon of microdosing I focus on as well. Is there any historical version of microdosing? Um, yeah, I do believe that um, in ancient Egypt uh, there was a, a passage about some... Um, some Egyptian priests who would, um, it sounded like they were microdosing on mushrooms and hemlock, to, uh, which would enable them to sit in quiet contemplation in their temples all day. How did you, um, how did you become interested in, in writing about psychedelics? Well, I was always interested in uh, magic and spirituality uh, in my life. And then when I was 18 years old, I had my first uh, magic mushroom experience. And um, from there, I was, like most people, so blown away by it that I wanted to learn everything I could about the, you know, the experience. Uh, so I decided to and instead uncover our historical past with regard to uh, these, these timeless medicines. You've also written a book about psychedelics and witchcraft, right? Yeah, I uh, I wrote my first book, uh, The Witch's Ointment, The Secret History of Psychedelic Magic, on the relationship between medieval wise women and the different kinds of psychedelics they were using and what they were using them for, and how the Catholic Church ended up demonizing the wise women's experience as satanic acts. You think psychedelics could have been the true reason for the witch hunt? 
Oh, no. I mean, they were, they were executed for any number of magical acts. Sometimes those magical acts didn't involve psychedelics at all. Other times they did. Um, in, in those days, there weren't really any laws yet against using psychedelics, but there were laws against magic. So in the records, you won't really find any condemnation of some press that a substance you know, may be uh, incorporated into. I heard this myth of the broom of witches, uh, you know, how they rubbed some psychedelic substance on the broom and then rubbed it or sat on the broom, rubbed it on themselves. And, and this might be the reason we view witches as like flying on brooms. Uh, so there isn't really any truth at all to the uh, the stories of uh, women masturbating with ointment-covered brooms, and that's where we get the idea of flying on a broom. Uh, that, uh, that story, or that, that, uh, that legend, we should say, was invented in 1972 by a guy named Michael Harrison. And um, in 1973, a year later, it was picked up by a, another guy named Michael, named Michael Harner, who wrote about it in his book, Hallucinogens and Shamanism. And nobody that ever was ever rubbing uh, these ointments on brooms and masturbating with them. Uh, that is a completely made-up um, uh, shibboleth in the modern world. Uh, you did have women uh, rubbing these ointments into their vaginal cavities. That they absolutely did. But the idea that they were rubbing them on brooms and then using the brooms you know, to, uh, uh, to carry the ointments into their bloodstream through the vagina... Is, is totally a made-up thing in the modern era. I mean, just think about it. In those days, brooms were not these, you know, uniform manufactured, you know, implements uh, that, that we have today. A broom in those days was basically the leafiest, you know, branch on a tree that you could find. Probably not very comfortable, you know, unless you're into that kind of thing. Are psychedelics part of contemporary Wiccan or witchcraft culture, you think? Well, it depends. I mean, you have certain uh, groups that believe that um, that psychedelics have not played any role in the history of witchcraft. Uh, that's okay. They're just <laughs> they're just very historically incorrect about that. And um, I mean, I most of my friends are witches and magicians, and most, if not all of them, in fact, all of them use psychedelics. So you know, you get different groups of people. Uh, you have you know kind of the poplicus stuff when they don't really use psychedelics, and then you have really, you know, the timeless lineage of, of these deep traditions, and those people were definitely using psychedelics, and we still use them today. In your recent book, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, you discussed the Lycinian mysteries, where, where people in ancient Greece took part in some sort of psychedelic ritual. Do you think that could have become, like, the seed of our modern culture? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm very careful to not place the psychedelic at the center of any society or of any culture, unless they, they really promote it as such, uh, as being at the center of their culture. I think that for the ancients, these, uh, these experiences, are just like today, were very profound, and they also probably weren't had as often as people have them today. So when people went to the um, to celebrate the rites of Eleusis, that was something you did once in your life. So if a psychedelic was at, at play at the rites of Eleusis, then that's the kind of thing where it's like that person might have only taken it once. 
Have you found any use of DMT that you can smoke in any of your research, or is that a like a modern invention? Uh, well, the the thing, the reason it probably doesn't pop up anywhere is because uh, DMT, in order to get the the best, you know, the the, the true and uh, hardcore effects of uh, 5-MeO DMT, you, you have to vaporize it, and they just didn't have vaporizers back in the ancient world, so. You know, they you have people, of course, in the Peruvian jungles taking uh, ayahuasca, of course, but that's so far removed from what was going on in Europe. They didn't really seem to have any kind of DMT analog in Europe. They were using things like cannabis, opium, mushrooms, mandrake, henbane, and actually a host of other psychoactives that we don't even know what they were. You know, they, 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 certain obscure names, you know, localized names for things. Um, Pliny, the, uh, Pliny the Younger writes of Thesigil and, and Persian um, mystics using this kind of herb Thesigil to, to prophecy. It was definitely something psychedelic, but we have no idea what Thesigil was. Uh, there was another kind of uh, plant known as Huron Look. We have no idea what Huron Look was. We, we don't know. Isn't Europe pretty poor historically when it concerns psychedelics compared to like South America, Siberia, Africa, where it seems they were used more? Uh, I I don't I don't agree with that. Um, in my book Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, uh, which just came out, I mean, I fill chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of the different ways um, Europeans were Western Europeans were using these sacred plants and fungi. Uh, one of the problems was we didn't really have a language until very recently to start discussing these uh, these kinds of experiences. So, I mean, uh, scholars have known for years that um, that the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Romans, the ancient Thracians were all using things like um, cannabis and opium and mandrake and mushrooms, but we didn't really have a vocabulary yet uh, for that until 1956 when Humphrey Osmond coined the term psychedelic, which allowed uh, Western researchers to take the the experience, uh, the psychedelic experience, out of the confines, the linguistic domain, we'll say, the term used at the time, which was psychotomimetic, which means mimicker of psychosis. Well, when you look back in the ancient records, I mean, and, and people are having these experiences, I mean, they, they did not feel like they were going crazy at all. So it took um, a, a brilliant scholar named Carl Ruck over at Boston University to coin the word entheogen, meaning generating divinity from within, because, uh, so Ruck is a an expert in ecstatic cults in the ancient world, specifically in Thrace and in Greece. And he was looking at these uh, these records uh, from those days and and the experiences people were having and said to himself, whoa, 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 these people are not going insane. They're having a religious awakening. They're having, you know, a spiritual, uh, a moving uh, spiritual experience. So he coined the word entheogen. So now we had two words, psychedelic and entheogen, and we could finally start placing these ancient uh, rites, both magical and spiritual, into their proper context. Whereas in other parts of the world, uh, specifically indigenous cultures, uh, they had different terms and words for these experiences. So it's, it's much easier for us to assume that they were more prone to having these experiences and having them more often. But the truth is, uh, the psychedelic use has been found all over the world and in every time period that we know that humanity has been around for. 
you know, I mean, I, I again, I fill my book with, with one record after the next, after the next, after the next of people using um, psychedelics in, in Western civilization. I, I mean, I think another reason is that they just don't, uh, a lot of uh, teachers, they don't know. Um, most teachers don't have degrees in history. They, in America, anyway, they have degrees in education. And, and you know, not, not the worst all for it, of course. I mean, getting a degree in education is very valuable and important. But there's a difference between somebody like me who goes into archives and translates, you know, right from their original languages, and somebody who just has a degree in teaching where they have a very surface understanding of history. I always find it interesting that when I talk about psychedelics with people who have not tried it, I'm often met with fear. You know, they're afraid to, to do it, which is weird because before I had done it, I didn't feel that afraid of it. But now when I've tried it, I can be really afraid of it, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. And and that goes back to the whole problem that, uh, you know, why it's largely believed that we don't have these experiences in the West. And that's because up until only a few decades ago, scientists and doctors just classified these experiences as going insane so i mean you're you're making the point right there i mean people still think to the to this day oh if you take this it makes you crazy and it's like no that that's not what it's doing at all i mean it's certainly opening you up to new ways of seeing the world and if you want to call that crazy by all means you can but i mean at the heart of the experience you know that's not what's really going on there when you wrote this book, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, what was your like reason for writing it? Uh, sure. So, I mean, mostly I wrote... So, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions mostly grew out of uh, excess material that didn't make it into the witch's ointment. But the reason I wrote both books goes back to what you were saying a moment ago about that in other places they were used more. And when I went back looking in the records, I mean, I was floored by how many descriptions people had of, of using these substances so mostly why I wrote both books was to correct that that misunderstanding and to say no look we do have psychedelic uh, traditions in Western civilization I mean just look at all these sources it would be interesting to know if the key people of the Renaissance used psychedelics like you know Leonardo da Vinci and people like that well there, there's some evidence so um uh, one one of the most famous uh, Renaissance at the time, named Heinrich Cornelius von Nettesheim, uh, wrote openly that he was used things like opium and mandrake and henbane. So um, you have him. You also have in psychedelic mystery traditions. I found a um, an entry in a medical tr uh, text called the Liber de Venenis, meaning the Book of Poisons. And in the Book of Poisons, you know, it's laid out like any any regular medical text where you have, you know, the title of each herb or, or plant or fungus or whatever, and then a description of it. And all of the, the titles for the different herbs and things look very plain, except for one, which is the entry for mushrooms. I mean, that one entry looks like, you know, some medieval hippie druid. So I, uh, I, that, that image is actually in the book. Uh, so if, if your listeners are interested in seeing what it looks like, but I think that that's, I mean, if it, it's not concluding evidence, of course, but it's certainly interesting and ancillary evidence to suggest that whoever copied out this manuscript had certainly sampled, or maybe I should say had sampled mushrooms and decided to express that while, while, copying out uh, his, his version of this manuscript. Do you think the Voynich manuscript has any psychedelic roots? 
I have no idea. I know that there's uh, there's an entry for cannabis in there, but people use whatever they could get their hands on. So even if somebody didn't write about smoking cannabis, I mean, I, I have friends who smoke cannabis every day. And if you were to look through, you know, their, their written works, uh, their letters, their emails, their, their diaries, I mean, it might never come up once. So, you know, it, it's, it's an odd kind of place we find ourselves in because we know people were using this stuff, and sometimes we actually know how they were using it, but most of the time we know that they were using it but have no idea how. And, I, I mean, and people did write about it. I mean, a guy named um, Girolamo Cardano writes about taking opium. Um, I had mentioned uh, Vanetta Scheim a moment ago who had uh, spoken of taking a variety of things. And uh, then you have Herodotus uh, speaking of the Scythians using cannabis. We know other parts of Thrace they were using cannabis. We have the temples of Isis in Egypt where they were using opium. So, you know, we have some inscriptions. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the word uh, cannabis itself is from the Assyrian verb, uh, which means to produce smoke. Uh, not that that's direct evidence uh, at all um, for, for people using it, but it, it's certainly interesting. And when you when you couple it with all the other evidence we have, I mean, there, there's there's plenty there to uh, to demonstrate that Westerners definitely were enjoying these kinds of plants throughout the centuries. Have you looked at psychedelic use in Islamic traditions? Uh, so there's a great book uh, by a cannabis historian, Chris Bennett, titled Cannabis and the Soma Solution. And in that book, he goes over the, um, you know, the connections to Islamic psychedelia, especially with regard to the Sufis and um, their hashish use. So um, there's, uh, yeah, there's a history there. I haven't looked too deeply into it, but my, my friend and colleague Chris has, so... If your inter- uh, if your listeners are interested in that, I would uh, suggest uh, Chris Bennett's Cannabis and the Soma Solution. There's a book called Tripping with Allah by Michael Muhammad Knight. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but you know when I look at Islam, I see a lot of psychedelic connections. I don't have any evidence. It's more a feeling, like you know, when you go into those mosques, you know, the pattern and the art of the mosque is very psychedelic. You know, when I do, like, every time I do ayahuasca, I always end up in, like, this Muslim prayer position. I can't, I don't know why. I just happen to end up in that position. And, uh, you know, it's the famous story of the prophet going into a cave and talking to angels. And a cave is a good place to do psychedelics, you know, because it's dark. And, um, yeah, like I said, I don't have any evidence. It's just a feeling that there's some psychedelic connection there with Islam. Yeah, but again, I mean, historically, um, there, there, there is some evidence there, um, as uh, Chris Bennett has, has shown in, in, in his book. Um, I don't really know much about it, though, uh, so I would, again, I would recommend looking at his stuff. But Tripping with Allah, that sounds great. I'm going to have to pick that up, too. Christmas is coming soon, and uh, in your book you write about Santa Claus. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So well, what I do in my book is I debunk a long-held belief that Santa Claus is associated with the Amanita muscaria mushroom. Uh, this is – it's pure bunk history. It's just conspiracy theory. Uh, there's no truth to it. I'm sure your listeners are probably familiar with that association of Santa and the Amanita. And um, – uh, I mean, I totally challenge it in my book, so if they're interested in why I don't buy it, they could check that out. Uh, I will say for now that the theorists who think that Santa's based off of the Amanita mushroom are totally complete, uh, conflating. 
So for one thing, you have the history of Santa Claus, which is its own historical line. Then you have the history of St. Nick, which is its own historical line. And then you have a history of reindeer herders in Siberia, which has its own historical line. And with those who believe that Santa Claus is, uh, excuse me, for those who believe that Santa Claus is tied um, to the Amanita Muscaria, they don't seem aware of all the history that they're getting wrong in order to make that case. Uh, there's three totally different lines of history, and you you have to unnaturally conflate them in order to make the theory work. Well, in, in the north uh, of Europe, like in the Scandinavian region, there's this folklore concept of the of a sort of Santa Claus. It's not really Santa Claus. It's like, I don't know what the English word would be for it, like sort of like an elf Um and it's like a tiny creature that that um, lives uh, can live in you know in the old days when people had uh, farms you know it could live in the barn it took care of your animals it took care of the farm and uh, you had to feed it like give it porridge and stuff like that you had to keep it happy otherwise it would become very mischievous and you know maybe burn the farm down or make sure there were plenty of rats and stuff like that so um it's kind of like reverse you like you give gifts to this little elf to keep it happy and um and this creature kind of looks like santa claus in a sense it's usually an older older person but it's tiny has a beard has like can have a like a red hat but it can also have other colors of hats and um so it's like a thing that is true in this region and then when Santa Claus came the two merged somehow sure and I mean all throughout Europe now that reminds me of stories of the Bonares which was uh, the the spirits that walked around in um in um, southwestern Europe around uh, Germany France Italy uh, places like that and uh, they would go from uh, village to village house to house and you would have to appease them by cleaning your house. And if your house was a little bit messy, they would ransack the house. But if the house was clean, they would bless it. And it just, that reminded me of, of the, the elf stories with, uh, with the barns. Um, but again, um, I mean, as you, you, you said yourself, like none of this has anything to do with Santa Claus at all. Um, you know, there's a lot of big leaps that we have to make. I mean, to say that, you know, the Amanita grows in the ground and the elves come from the ground. I, I mean, yeah, maybe, but you could make that argument about roses, which also come from the ground, um, apple trees, which, which come from the ground, snakes, which crawl out of the ground. You know, you can you can make that, that argument with anything. What I find interesting is that the Amanita is connected with Christmas a lot. It might not be a symbol of Santa Claus, but like this elf I talked about before, you know, you often see this creature with the Amanita in, in Christmas decorations, in paintings and and in very old paintings as well. So I think there is, is some sort of, of uh, connection there that comes from pagan culture in, in some way. Oh, sure. Well, and I mean, you also have the, the holiday cards from the Germanic areas. Is that what you're referring to, the, with the little elves and the Amanitas? Yeah, kind of. I, I write about that in Psychedelic Mystery Traditions. So what that is, is the, the Amanita, for one reason or another, 
is a symbol of luck. Uh, we don't know how far back, I'm, I'm with you there, we don't know how far back it, it goes into history or what about it makes it lucky. I mean, possibly because if you were on your way to a New Year party, you know, and, and you passed a whole bunch of Amanitas, you know, th- that was pretty lucky because now you're going to have Amanitas at the, at the New Year party. So maybe that's what it was. But they weren't actually tied to any Christmas celebration. They were all tied to New Year celebrations. Um, that's why when you, you look at, like, I, I show uh, in my book those postcards from the, the turn of the, uh, the 20th century, uh, the 19th going into the 20th century, um, it, it, there's nothing about them that are Christmassy at all. They're, in fact, I mean, they're totally New Year cards. And uh, on, um, on YouTube, I have a video. It's also on my website, psychedelicwitch.com, if uh, your listeners are interested in checking it out. But um, that, I mean, it, it pretty soundly debunks the whole Amanita-Santa Claus connection. Do you think Amanita was a psychedelic sacrament in some cultures? Oh, Absolutely. Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, it certainly was among Siberian shaman. I mean, that's for sure. And um, it probably found its way into the uh, the the uh, Yule beers that that happened around uh, the Yule celebrations. Scandinavia uh, was probably a, a big area for Yule celebrations. No. Yeah, it's it's very pagan. Yeah, very pagan. Um, so, I mean, in, in that sense, I think that you probably have people adding Amanita muscaria to their their beers and their meads. Sure. Amanitas grow everywhere where I live. I mean, I don't have to look for them. You you trip over them, no pun intended. Uh, you know, if you walk in the forest, uh, they're all over the place. And I always saw them as dangerous. It took me many decades to rediscover them. And the current view on the Amanita as dangerous is a sort of brainwashing, I think. Well, it is. It is. And of course, you know, messing with anything and not being, you know, having all the information can be dangerous. So um, perhaps a better way uh, of going about teaching kids about the Amanita muscari, and in fact all mushrooms and psychoactives, is not to scare them uh, with what the effects are going to be like, but be honest about what the effects are like. And, you know, unfortunately in our culture, we don't have any rite of passage uh, with these substances, and I think that that would do a whole lot for um, you know getting down any any kind of uh, negative experiences in people. Do you think it's possible to bring that back somehow? The rites of passage. Yeah, um, I don't know because so I'm in America and everybody has a stick up their ass about substances. <laughs> so uh, of these different medicinal plants and spirit plants and uh, spirit plant medicines. So it's different because we're, we we spend way too much time lying to kids about them. So then to turn that all around and say, so we were all just being full of shit for the past you know century. There's actually really nothing wrong with these these plants and these fungi, and actually using them can can help you in your life. I mean, how are they going to you know work all that back and just say, hey, we've been lying to you this whole time? You know that that's a that's a tricky situation. I have a child myself, and I want my daughter to have a rite of passage. But with psychedelics, you don't you don't want to force it on anybody. No, of course not. You don't ever, you, and you, you don't ever give somebody something without them knowing. Can you talk a bit about the psychedelic renaissance that we can in right now? Sure. So the psychedelic renaissance 
um, is born out of the idea that psychedelics are becoming more and more acceptable in society. Um, people are realizing, as we were saying a moment ago, that, you know, they've been lied to for the past centuries. Um, you know, all the science is on our side. And you also have guys like Chris Bennett, myself, uh, a guy named Danny Nemu, a guy named Cody Nakoni, and others that are digging up the psychedelic history of Western civilization and, of course, of course, all over the world. Also here in America, we're seeing greater acceptance of them because of uh, Michael Pollan's uh, book, called uh, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, Michael Pollan is a pretty famous writer over here, and he just uh, uh, published a book about uh, using psychedelics. So it, he's been introducing you know, the, the, the spirit plants to people who otherwise would stay away from them. So that's really positive. Then you have our, um, our Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Uh, they just approved uh, psilocybin mushrooms for the treatment of post-traumatic stress stress disorder and depression and up in canada mdma has gone i think it it made its way into uh phase two of testing for uh both ptsd and um and uh treatment of depression so that all is what's contributing to the psychedelic renaissance it's just a, a changing of the way people see the these extraordinary plants where I live, you know, they made mushrooms illegal because some guy walked down the street naked. But it's funny because, you know, if you take mushrooms, you quickly realize that why can't you walk down the street naked? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. They, they're, they're the very people, you know, that threw the book at this guy would probably be walking down the streets naked themselves. I've been following this Michael Pollan thing, and it's funny that something becomes acceptable because Pollan talks about it, but Terence McKenna talks about it for decades, and... No one in the mainstream cares. It's like you gotta have a degree or something for people to listen. I I I gotta tell you, man, like that that infuriates me as well. It's like why all of a sudden, wow, just because Michael Pollan said it's okay, now it's okay. It's like people have been saying this stuff's okay now for for quite some time. So, I, I mean, as scientists have known how safe this stuff is back from the the 1940s. They know how safe things like LSD and mushrooms were. So and are. I, I agree with you. It's it, it's just it's a little sad that it's like oh it, it took Michael Pollan saying it, but at the same time I'm also happy that he did say it because now we are getting greater acceptance. I just hopefully what Michael Pollan will do will serve as a bridge for people that will now discover other books by guys like Ben Sessa and Martin Ball and Chris Bennett and Stephen Gray and Terence McKenna. Those that work with psychedelics usually have one that they are more closer to than any other. And so, which one is it for you? Which is your go-to psychedelic? Um, anybody that reads uh, my book, uh, Microdosing Magic: A Psychedelic Spellbook, will will find out very quickly that my preferred medicine is mushrooms, psilocybin, cubenzies, or azarescens are great too. Uh, but any any kind of uh, psilocybin mushroom is uh is my preferred uh medicine to work with do they grow naturally in your part of the world uh, as a matter of fact i'm going to be going to the coast tomorrow to uh with my partner to pick some psilocybin azarescence and some amanita muscaria i've seen the cubensis where i live but i'm afraid to pick it because i'm not sure it is that one you know and some mushrooms are actually very dangerous and i'm, I'm not a mycologist yeah, well, that's very smart. Uh, as I as I say to people all the time, if you don't know what you're putting in your body, don't put it in your body. Um, the thing about mushrooms, 
what I prefer about them is that if you can identify them and you know what you're doing, then you've completely cut out any middle person, you know, involved. Like you just like again tomorrow, my partner and I are just going to go to the coast and get them ourselves. Now we're going to be very careful, of course, and and we have a, a friend of ours who is an expert mycologist that guides us through the process. But um, you know, as, as we 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 deepen our knowledge of, of these uh, fungal allies. Um, but yeah, I would, I would definitely say that if you don't know what you're putting in your body, don't put it in your body because you're right. A psychedelic mushroom will grow side by side by a mushroom with a mushroom that'll kill you. So be very careful. Can there be a risk if it is the right mushroom, but it might grow on something that contains something toxic and it somehow gets infected itself by, you know, feeding of it? Um, I... That is, the, I've never heard of that, but uh, that's that would be a question for a truly expert top-tier mycologist, of which I am not. <laughs> I've never heard of that, though, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. Ayahuasca and DMT can be so overpowering that mushrooms can feel like a vacation sometimes, but if you take a big enough dose, mushrooms can also be extremely overpowering. My, my way of measuring the strength of something is if I feel like I'm in a... 360 degree environment I always say that I'm not into microdosing I'm more into macrodosing for me it's important to feel fully immersed if it's too weak it doesn't feel like the experience is outside of me I mean I, I don't want it to feel like it's my mind that creates it if it's from my mind I for some reason find it less interesting of course yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. I'm I'm do a deep dive myself actually, and you know while while I do you know uh, um, favor microdosing as a practice for people, I mean I am all for the macrodose and uh, the the positive, um, just uh, uh, changes to your life that can come with taking you know a high dose of psilocybin mushrooms or LSD. I guess with internet, your book is available worldwide? Uh, yes, um, my books are available. Uh, all three of my books are available on my website, psychedelicwitch.com. They're also available on amazon.com. And uh, some smaller pagan and Wiccan bookstores have them as well. Where you live in Oregon, uh, right above California, are they discussing making psilocybin mushrooms legal there like they are in California? Uh, yeah, so Oregon, California, and Colorado are the three states right now working to put psilocybin mushrooms on a ballot. So what this is is if uh, in here with the states, if you can get a certain number of signatures from people, then it just goes to a ballot vote as to whether psilocybin will be made legal or not. And so that's um, – we're working on it here. Um, some people in California are working on it, and uh, they're working on it in Colorado too. Well, hopefully it will be successful. I mean America does influence the rest of the world. So if something is legal in America, then no reason it can't be legal somewhere else. Although Portugal and Holland are a bit ahead of the rest. I mean, in Portugal, all drugs are decriminalized. That That's the right way to go. Everything should be decriminalized. Yeah, and they have had good results with less use and less addiction and so on. Yeah, I mean, well, the uh, like... The most dangerous part of using a lot of these things are actually in the laws themselves because due to the illegal nature of using the, the, these spirit plants and uh, fungal allies, 
people do, you know, careless things and they do things they normally wouldn't do simply because it's an illegal practice that they want to engage in. Whereas if you just made it legal, they wouldn't, you know, be going through all these hoops or whatever. Like what, what I mean by it is this, like you make cannabis as just one thing, the, the, this taboo thing, it's illegal, it's terrible, it's going to kill you. So what happens is a teenager takes her car out and smokes cannabis because she doesn't want to be near her parents or the authorities or anything like that. And, you know, somebody crashes into her through no fault of her, her own. But then she is actually put in jail because she was smoking cannabis, even though she didn't do anything technically wrong. She wasn't the one driving recklessly. And if you just made it decriminalized and didn't have the stigma, she would have just been sitting in her backyard smoking a joint instead, not harming anybody. So it's like the, the laws, I think, are more dangerous than the substances themselves. I know a lot of policemen, when they encounter hash smokers, for instance, they're often sitting around playing video games, but when they encounter drunk people, they might be involved in some sort of violent activity. So the police usually, you know, some even if they have to arrest the hash smokers, they usually prefer not to, I think. I mean, deep down. I don't remember where I saw this. It's it's this old quote from the Victorian era, and it's a woman who was writing a... Um, I believe she was writing a letter. It was either in her journal or she was writing a letter to somebody. I saw this years ago. And um, she writes that uh, she liked when her husband uh, – well, she hated when her husband would go out drinking because he'd come home and he'd be in a bad mood and he'd hit her. But she really liked when her husband would go out and smoke hash because then all he did was come home and want to have sex. I remember when I was a student, at times we sat and smoked and then went out to – to the pub or something and we discovered that uh, we, it was nicer to be at home smoking so you know we usually went back home <laughs> yeah well that's so what I've learned with that and uh, here's here's a good tip you have to already be doing the thing before you do the cannabis so what I do is I go out to the club with my friends and it's like so I make magic potions so like of cannabis or you know different cookies and confections and they usually take about an hour to kick in. So I'll eat it just as we get to the club, right? So then I'll, I'll have a beer or so. I'll dance for a little bit. And then it'll start to kick in. The cannabis will kick in. And I'll be in that zone. You know what I mean? I'll be in that mindset of, you know, dancing and socializing and meeting people. And then I find I don't want to just go home. But if I smoke... Before I go to the club, the same thing happens to me. I'll just I'll get there and I'll turn around and be like, no, nah, this isn't for me. So pro tip, you have to be doing the thing already before the cannabis kicks in. Do you have a website you want to share or social media? My website is just psychedelicwitch.com. So I also have uh, Instagram. It's at witchydelic, W-I-T-C-H-Y-D-E-L-I-C. So at witchydelic. And I also have a Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash the psychedelic witch. And uh, there's videos and posts, and you can get in touch with me there if you want to yell at me about something. Or the website is a good place to get in touch with me as well. Well, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Check out psychedelicwitch.com. Now, a while back, the whiz kid, Elon Musk, you know, the guy uh, that uh, runs Tesla, he appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast, and I found Elon Musk's way of saying yes very fascinating. There was something 
otherworldly to Elon's tone in his voice. I can't really put it into words. Was it mystical? Yes. Was it intriguing? Yes. Was it soothing? Yes. No, I think, you know, I think people should be nicer to each other and give more credit to, to others and don't assume that they're mean until you know they're actually mean. It's easy to demonize people. You're usually wrong about it. People are nicer than you think. Wouldn't hurt to have more love in the world. This conflict started August 2nd when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Today, a young man on acid realized that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. There's no such thing as death. Life is only a dream, and we're the imagination of ourselves. Here's Tom with the weather. Crowing comes from the rooster. Morning comes from God. Wouldn't hurt to have more love in the world. I lay in the field of green grass for four hours, going, my God, I love everything. The heavens parted, God looked down and rained gifts of forgiveness. Onto my being, healing me on every level, psychically, physically, emotionally. And I realized our true nature is spirit, not body, that we are eternal beings, and God's love is unconditional. There's nothing we can ever do to change that. It is only our illusion that we are separate from God or that we are alone. In fact, the reality is we are one with God and He loves us. That isn't a hazard to this country. You see my point. How are we going to keep building nuclear weapons? You know what I mean? What's going to happen to the arms industry when we realize we're all one? <laughs> it's going to fuck up the economy. The economy that's fake anyway. <laughs> Which would be a real bummer, you know.
You can see why the government's cracking down on the idea of experiencing unconditional love. I appreciate that you listen to this podcast. I often ask myself if this podcast even exists if no one is listening. And as far as I know, people are. So thank you for doing that. If you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. A link can also be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. If you become a Patreon, you'll get access to new episodes before everyone else, as well as access to a bunch of other rants, recordings, deleted material and behind the scenes. I call this place in the digital space the round table of the divine mystery. So please join us, patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. Next week is going to be episode 200. I will then release a little item for sale on nationalbornalchemist.com, something that you can give away as a gift or give to yourself. And also an excellent way to support the podcast. I hope you will all like it. But it is an extremely limited edition kind of thing. Rupert Sheldrake was a guest on the podcast a while back and earlier this year his son released his debut album The Much Much How How and I. Here is the song Linger Longer. Go to cosmosheldrake.com to check it out. Freedom is in the mind.